We're still probably working in this into our tradition, so I want to remind you that it's an old church tradition that the day you would take communion, you would also collect a separate offering that would go to the poor. And so we have set up baskets here on the sides that if when you come up during the offer, uh, during the communion, you want to give money that goes to our benevolence fund. I just want to remind you of that. Today we're going to talk about substitution, and so I need, like every Sunday, but particularly this Sunday, for for the Holy Spirit to really serve us to help us see what it is that He wants us to see. So let's pray together. Lord, you said you came to serve and not to be served. And so we need your service right now to see something greater than what we typically see, to to take our eyes off of the things of this world and to have them firmly placed on you so that then as we leave this place and then see the world, we are growing out of the ground of your substitution for us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a man named Frank Gajalnicek, I think is how you say his last name. Frank Gajalnicek who died in 1995 at the age of 95, and his death brought the end of an annual pilgrimage he made for 53 consecutive years. On August 14th, every year for 53 years, Frank faithfully went on a pilgrimage, and the purpose of the pilgrimage was to honor a man who had died in his behalf 53 years earlier. And the place that he went is a place called Auschwitz in Poland. The name of the man that he went to go and honor and to remember was Max Colby. Max Colby was a Catholic priest And when Germany invaded Poland in 1939, he was part of creating a shelter for refugees. And so refugees were all over the country of Poland, and there were some 3,000 of them in Frank's city. And a number of them were Jewish people whom Max Colby welcomed in, which inevitably led to Colby falling under the suspicion of the Nazi regime and eventually led to the shelter being closed and Colby himself as a Catholic priest being shipped off to Auschwitz, a death camp in Poland. The conditions of Auschwitz really are too severe to describe here this morning. We can say that it was a place that anybody would want to try to escape from, And because everyone was trying to escape from, they had a law there that if one man escaped, ten men would be killed in his place, which would help discourage people from trying to escape. In late July, a man in Colby's unit escaped. 
the unit was sent around to try to see if they could find him in the surrounding area and he couldn't be found. And so they came out in front of their living quarters and ten minutes, ten, ten men were lined up and prepared to be locked into the, in the starvation bunker. In the starvation bunker, they just put you in there, middle of the camp, and you were given no food and no water until you died. One of the ten men's name was Frank Gajalnicek. He was a young man in his early 40s. He had a wife and two children. And when his name was called out, he began to sob openly, My poor wife and my two children, what will happen to them? And as he's crying out, a man named Max Colby steps forward and says, I'm a Catholic priest. I would like to take his place. And the whole place fell silent as the Nazi commander considered the request. The commander agreed. Frank returned to the ranks. Colby took his place. And these are Frank's own words, and I quote, I was put back into my place without having time to say anything to Max Colby. I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned. And I could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me. I was saved. Two weeks passed in the the starvation bunker, and nine of the men died, and the last one alive was Father Colby. And the bunker was needed for new victims, and so they executed Father Colby on August the 14th. Frank Gajalinacek survived Auschwitz, and every August the 14th for 53 years until he died when he was 95, he returned back to honor the man who died on his behalf. And I wonder how many times in the 53 years Frank must have heard these words, I'm a Catholic priest. I I would like to take his place. It's a true story. It's a powerful story of substitution. It's really meant, obviously, to draw our attention to a much more powerful, world-impacting, substitutionary moment. If you read the Bible, the Bible is pretty clear on the human condition. It describes the human condition, it describes your condition, it describes my condition in very bleak terms. The book of Romans is probably the clearest place. It says this, You and I have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for other images. Instead of worshiping God, we are worshiping ourselves. We are worshiping other things. We are worshiping things that are created and not the creator. And because of this displacement of God, we degrade our bodies. You and I are filled with all kinds of wickedness, greed, envy, murder, 
deceit, gossip, lust, idolatry, slander, just to name a few. Romans goes on to say that although we know intuitively that these things really deserve death, that that people who do these things don't deserve life, we know that intuitively, but yet we continue to do them. And intuitively we know there's going to be some day of judgment, some, some day of reckoning. And we know that there is, if there is a God, His judgment will come against people who do those things. Romans says every person knows those things intuitively. We're like condemned prisoners that deserve death. Romans doesn't stop there. I mean, the incredible news, the good news, the the great news, the gospel, what everybody on the planet needs to hear, Romans continues to say. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is described as a great high priest. He uniquely stands before God Almighty. He sees our condition. He sees that we're completely cut off. And instead of being repelled by our condition, he steps forward. And it's as if he looks into our lives and looks at our lives and says, I see you. I I see your condition. I see that you're hopelessly sick. And I'm going to step up and say, I am God in the flesh. And I would like to take your place. If I could use Romans, Paul's words from Romans, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, why we were still sinners. We weren't even crying out for mercy. We were moving in the opposite direction. Christ died for us. To use Frank's words, I'm stunned. It's hard to grasp the immensity of what has happened. Paul Phillips, the condemned. I am to live. Someone else is willingly and voluntarily standing in my place. In theological terms, you'd call this the concept of substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ is the substitute. And Mark Chapter, the end of chapter 14 and chapter 15 is intentionally drawing our attention to understand what's happening in this area. And he's doing it by looking at two different trials. The end of chapter 14, starting in verse 66 and going to the end of the chapter. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. That's one trial that Jesus is under. And he, the condemned is condemned at the end of the trial, and at the end of the trial, Peter goes free. In the passage that we read this morning, chapter 15, 
Jesus the innocent is condemned and Barabbas goes free. So I want to look at these two briefly and then just draw some applications for us this morning. First in Mark chapter 14 at the end, and we saw this before with Peter. Mark is intentionally trying to draw the parallels between these two trials. It's not just Jesus who's on trial. Peter's on trial. And Mark's just been walking us through, mostly in chapter 14, to see how these two men, Peter and the God-man, Jesus, are reacting to their trial. Jesus enters a courtroom. Peter enters a courtyard. Jesus' question, Peter is question. Jesus is being charged with something. Peter is being charged with something. But if you look back in chapter 14, verse 55, you see that Jesus is being charged with something that is untrue. The whole council was seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Every charge they kept trying to bring up, they couldn't find enough corroborating evidence to really condemn Jesus. And so Jesus is innocent, and yet he is condemned. Peter, in the courtyard, is charged with something. Aren't you one of them? Aren't you with Jesus? And the answer to that, the true answer to that is, yes, I am. But Peter continues to deny it. He is actually guilty, and at the end of his trial, he is set free. Luke 22, remember how Luke 22 describes it? The, 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 the courtyards are on two different levels, but somehow when Jesus comes out of the courtroom and enters into the courtyard, it's at the very moment that Peter is calling down condemnation on Jesus Christ, and he catches Peter's eye. Just before the rooster crows, they lock eyes. And Jesus may have said a lot of things in that look. But I think he must have at least been saying, Peter, I see your condition. I I told you you're going to betray me. But I'm the son of God. I am God in the flesh. And Peter, you're going to walk out of your trial free because I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to take your place. Mark chapter 15, we see this with same thing happening with Barabbas. The first trial for Jesus involves the religious leadership. The second one is the political leadership. You see, the Jewish people at that time didn't have the authority to put somebody to death. So they had the charges and then they have to stay up all night trying to figure out, well, what can we bring to the civil authorities? And they spend all night trying to figure out what they could bring to Pilate. So when they bring the case to Pilate the next morning, Pilate can say, yes, this man is worthy of being put to death. Pilate serves as the civil judge. And so in verse 1 through 5, you have this very interesting conversation between the two. It's like a cross-examination. And what interestingly happens is Pilate is putting Jesus on trial. And as you sort of piece together the the different conversations in in the four gospel accounts, what you find out is Jesus actually begins to put Pilate on trial. Pilate, you're you're the governor, but I'm the king of kings. And what you need to answer, Pilate, is not not about me. It's not about who you what you think. It's about what you think of me. 
The most important thing, Pilate, here is what you think of me. And so they have this very fascinating conversation. But in the end, Pilate doesn't think Jesus is guilty. But he's a weak leader. He's afraid of the crowd. We could see that. He doesn't really care about Jesus. He just doesn't think he's guilty. And so he's just trying to find some kind of loophole instead of being in charge and saying, no, this is what I've decided. He tries to figure out a way to sort of get around it. And he gets around it by using this very uh, unusual custom. At the time of Passover, you remember the Jewish people are all gathered into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They're being released as slaves, being released as prisoners in Egypt. And there's this unusual custom that during the Passover, the governor would release one prisoner, a prisoner of the people's choice. And so Pilate thinks, well, I, this is the way I, the, the, the Jewish leadership doesn't like uh, Pilate, but just all the people here, they'll be, I mean, they don't, they don't like Jesus, but they'll, the, the leaders, I mean, the, the crowd, they'll cheer for Jesus when I bring his name up during this custom. And so Pilate calls out to the crowd, who do you want me to release? Jesus, the, the, the king of the Jews? Fully expecting them to say, sure. I mean, the man who's been bringing dead people to life, we want that guy around. The, people, the, the man who's been feeding us. The man who's been bringing sight to the blind. The man who's been healing the lame. We need him around. And so Pilate thinks he's got a pretty good case here. And the crowd yells back, Barabbas! We want Barabbas! I don't know how many of you saw the the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion. Of course, we don't know what Barabbas looked like. But if you remember, you remember seeing that movie, what he looked like? He was just a dirty, couldn't see out of one eye, just kind of a gross character. Not, not really anything likable about him from an external viewpoint. And you're just stunned in the movie that people would want this guy. He's a, he's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. He's causing all kinds of mayhem. He may have been some kind of bandit who had stolen goods from the very people who were asking for his release. And yet the leaders had worked up the crowd and said we'd rather have a convicted felon. And so at the end of the trial, Jesus the innocent is condemned and Barnabas, Barabbas, goes free. You know, I think Pilate was stunned. And I wonder if Barabbas was stunned. I mean, we know that Peter and Jesus' eyes met in the courtyard, but I wonder somewhere if Barabbas and Jesus' eyes met. Barabbas knew he was a murderer. And I wonder if he saw the same kind of look saying, I'm the son of God, Barabbas. And I'm going to take your condemnation And I'm going to let you go for free. I'm willingly doing it. I'm wanting to do it for you. Mark is trying to help us see something very important here. Peter 
is a betrayer. He's an insider who suddenly became an outsider. He was the closest friend, and yet at the greatest time of need, he couldn't hold up. He was really about, in the end, as religious as he looked, as all the whistles and bells he could have, in the end, what you've got down to at the very center of Peter's heart is that I'm really Jesus, I'm really for myself. When the rubber meets the road, I'm in it for me. A betrayer. Jesus says, I have come to die for people like that. And I have come to die for people like Barabbas, murderers, insurrectionists. Now, we're not really surprised when we read Mark 14 and 15 of this idea of substitution. It's not like it's an idea that just sort of popped on the screen and we're supposed to have just figured this out. It's something as we walk through Mark, we can see it in a number of different places. And two of the most obvious, Mark 10.45, I've mentioned this already. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And... Remember what it says? And to give his life a ransom for many. He's telling his disciples, the whole purpose that I'm here is to serve you and to give my life a ransom. There's some kind of note on your head and you can't pay it off and I'm going to pay it off for you. And then at the Last Supper, when Jesus takes communion In some sense, this transition from Passover to the Last Supper, he looks at his disciples and he says this, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I have come to give my life a ransom for many. This is the blood of my covenant that's poured out for many. Many as opposed to what? See, a lot of people would say as opposed to all. And I think that would be to miss the entire point of the two passages that's come out of. If you say all, what you're trying to do is you're trying to narrow down who gets in. And what Jesus is trying to say is, it's many, it's all kinds of people. It's all kinds of murderers. It's all kinds of blasphemers. It's all kinds of sexually immoral people. It's all kinds of thieves and liars and adulterers. It's many. And do you hear the great news on that? It's people like me. I get in. You get in. I'm so glad it's not narrow. I'm so glad the term is a liberal, big-hearted, generous term. All kinds of sinners can get into the kingdom. It's just not a few. It's many people can come in. Jesus is substituting himself for all kinds He he steps forward in your place and my place. And he sees all of the sins that nobody sees here. He sees all of your thoughts. And he says, I know that. 
And I've come to pay for that. It's, it's hard to grasp. It's stunning, the immensity of it. So I conclude with two points of application here. The first may be obvious. Are you part of the many? Are you in the many? I don't think you can answer that question without first answering this question from Mark 10. Am I willing to be served? You see, if you're going to be part of the many, you have to be willing to be served. Jesus Christ did not come to serve, but to be served. He came looking for people to serve. He didn't come looking for servants. He came looking for people who need help. He didn't come looking for people who want to help. And there's a big difference in understanding those things. I think the easiest way to see that is in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is having dinner with Levi. Remember Levi, Matthew, the tax collector? And Levi's invited over all of his friends, all of his terrible friends. It's like the worst group. And he's just said, you know, I'm really part of the loser group. I got all the worst kinds of friends because I'm kind of the worst kind of person. I'm stealing from my own people. And so my own people don't really want to be with me. I've got the worst kinds of friendships and I'm inviting them all over. And Jesus shows up with his disciples And Jesus is eating with many tax collectors and sinners. Mark says many people follow Jesus, all kinds of the worst people. Yet when the teachers of the law came, what did they say? Why is he eating with those kinds of people? That's the very opposite of what we would anticipate. Does he not know what kinds of people he's having dinner with? And I think in their question, they have this. Jesus, we thought you would be coming to look for servants. People who could help you out. People like us. And Jesus, remember what he said? It's not the healthy you need a doctor. But the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, I'm looking for people who want to be served by the Son of the living God. And it's a big question that we need to ask. And I would say it might be the first question on the way to the gospel Do you understand your condition? Do you understand that you are hopelessly sick? That left on your own, you can't muster up anything that's worthy 
of Jesus Christ's attention. He has given his attention willingly, lovingly, voluntarily on your behalf. People who are tax collectors and sinners, betrayers and blasphemers, murderers and immoral people. The first step to Jesus, the first step into being part of the many, is to understand your dreadful condition. And the Bible is pretty clear. It seems pretty hard for the religious people to get into that door. The religious people think they get themselves in on some measure. Oh, yeah, yeah, I hear you, Paul. I've got a couple of those things, but I'm really not that bad. You're not part of the many. You know, I don't think Peter ever thought that again. I mean, mean, after the look of him trying to condemn his Savior... I mean, I think he was pretty humble about his own condition and how fallen he was after that point. He didn't pull out any, you know, Sunday school attendance brass buttons and hold them up. Hey, I, I, I thought I was part of the few, the proud. Now Peter's saying, I'm part of the many. I'm a blasphemer. I'm a murderer. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm one of those guys. I need to be numbered with those people because if I'm not numbered with those people, Jesus Christ didn't come to serve the self-righteous. He came to serve the sick. And I don't know um, about Frank for the 53 years after he left Auschwitz, what it was like for him. I mean, when I read about him online, I didn't read anything about those 53 years of his life. Although I'm sure there's something there. But I'm just imagining myself, during those 53 years, what if somewhere during the 53 years, and this inevitably had to happen, somebody was asking Frank for a hand. Hey, would you mind coming and, and helping me out? Would you mind extending yourself for me, Frank, what do you think your reaction might be? Yes, I'd love to. How quickly can I rush in to, to, to extend myself and, and to offer whatever I have financially or, or emotionally? Or can I offer my forgiveness? How quickly can I, can I rush in and, and be merciful? Because I've known a mercy that so few people have ever known, I still have it ringing in my ears, I would like to take your place. And so, yes, I would love to give away my forgiveness. Generously. I would love to give away my mercy. Generously. I would love to give away my possessions with joy. Because I almost lost all of my possessions. And now any of them, I'm certainly willing to give them away. It reminds me of the man in the parable who found a great treasure. Remember he found a great treasure? And then what did he go back and do? He went back and he sold all of his possessions. And how did he do it? 
with joy. You wouldn't believe it. I'm so happy to give myself away. I'm so happy to give my material possessions away. I'm so happy to extend forgiveness and mercy because I have a treasure. And the way I'm going to get that treasure is by giving these things away. And I'm so happy to give away joyfully. Jesus says... Love your enemies. Be merciful. And many of you here in this room are struggling in a situation. I mean, I just don't get how how I can do that. You don't understand the situation. How can I extend myself? What, what, what reservoir do I have to be able to give myself back out again and again and again? And I'd rather hold on to it. I'd rather be bitter. I'd rather make sure I'm the one in charge. I've got to have the last say. Instead of be open. How is it possible? You have to be planted in the soil At the bottom of the cross. Have you you had a little glimpse that Jesus Christ, not Max Colby, a priest, but the Son of the Most High God, He looked at you, He saw everything. And he said, when you were on your way to death, he said, I would like to take her place. I would like to take his place. And you know what? He doesn't just put us back in line to die 53 years later. You know what he gives us? The eternal wealth of heaven. And he spreads it out and says, you're part of the kingdom. You're a co-heir. Everything that I have, you have. Isn't it incredible? So if you're struggling with forgiveness, if you're struggling with mercy, if you're struggling with loving your enemies, here's the place you need to revisit. It seems hard to think that Frank would have forgotten in 53 years Max's Words, But I have to say, life intersects your life. Difficulties rush in. What you were so certain of at one moment, just something else intersects it. Busyness or noise. And you forget. It seemed to me that Frank realized there was a possibility of forgetting. So every year he came back, August the 14th, and he remembered what was done on his behalf. We do it every month. Do you remember? Have you gotten a glimpse that somebody's looked at you and said, I'd like to take your place? Let's pray together. Lord, as we
remember, it's, it's, it's just difficult for us sometimes. But Holy Spirit, I pray now that each person here would hear your words. I have willingly, lovingly taken your place. And I'm here to serve the sick. Help us to see ourselves aright. Help us to see you. To savor you. To remember what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a cup and he said, this is the blood of my covenant. And I'm so thankful he said this for many. For many. It's a table for liars. It's a table for adulterers. It's a table for thieves. It's a table for sinners. Who have trusted completely in Christ as their Savior? I'll ask the elders to come forward and...